0: So a radically adaptable company is constantly looking at the aperture of what are the risks and what are the opportunities on an ongoing basis and where they need to go with those along with an agile framework of these monthly sprints of looking at the world and running our meetings. Those two things together are very powerful.
1: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from John Wooden, Adaptability is being able to adjust to any situation at any given time. My guest today, Keith Ferrazzi, is an influential business thinker who's heavily focused on adaptability. He's an entrepreneur who founded and sold two companies and now works with Fortune 100 companies and their executive team worldwide as the chairman of Farazi Greenlight and its Research Institute. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author of Never Eat Alone, which is actually on my desk right here, Uh, Who's Got Your Back? Leading Without Authority, and a new book, Competing in the New World of Work, which releases today. Keith, thank you for uh, joining us. It's great to have you back on the show. Robert, old friend, it's great to see you. I'm excited to get caught up. All right. So the last time we talked on this podcast was in the spring of, of 2020, which only feels like at least a decade ago. Yeah, um, so now nice. we had this small little global pandemic. Um, but I think when we did our episode, it was still really early. So I thought it'd be a great place to start. Like what's changed? How have you adapted personally and
0: professionally to, to pandemic life? Well, first of all, when you and I spoke, I was releasing my last book. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never turned around a book in such a short period of time, but that was the wonderful opportunity. I feel like the one thing I did during this horribly disruptive period of time was use it as an inflection point. I was so desperate to make sure that the world didn't crawl out of the rubble and go back to old ways of working. Yeah. But instead, as you know, we went forward to work. That was the principle. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, what I, I didn't realize how long it would last, it just gave me more time for the research. We and had so obviously that months.
1: book had been written before the pandemic, right? Uh, so, <laughs> so, Leading Without
0: Authority was the book you and I were talking about. Yeah, it yeah. got launched on whatever it was in uh, April right. or so when we, when you and I were together,
1: right? Which is ironic because suddenly people were leading without <laughs> people in front of them and without the, I mean, a lot of authority was physically being over people,
0: right? Yeah, in fact, in the, <laughs> it, was, it was a well timed book unintentionally. Because all of the rule books and org charts got thrown out the window, yeah. and anybody who had passion for change, who, who wanted to step up and get shit to happen during the crisis, they yeah. were leaders. And this was a that book, Leading Without Authority, was a was a role model for it. Now, what I realized was there was about to be a bunch of learning. So, what we were practicing during the pandemic was what I call crisis agile. I I was working with the Delta Airlines organization during the pandemic, and I watched them wake up every single day. They were in half-day agile sprints as a company, literally half day. Yeah, The the pandemic killed all the sacred cows. We can't do this.
1: We couldn't do that, right? Remote work would never work for our company. I mean, all all those
0: (laughs) absolutes just went right out the door. Well, and my big concern... Was that we'd, those sacred cows would come back from the dead like the fucking Grateful Dead. I mean, like the, the what is it? What it was not the Grateful Dead, the um walking dead. Like I thought they were going to be cow zombies. And that's what I was fearful would happen. So I wanted to make sure that we took advantage of this and we researched. So we, we took 2000 executives, didn't think it was going to be that many at the beginning, 2000 executives in one on one interviews and then small group research forums. And we asked them the question, what are you loving about the way you're working now? That is a best practice that you want to share and hold on to and not lose. And so what we found out was that there were four fundamental groups of best practices that came out in this book as a leader. One was how we were leading and looking around corners because, look, it used to be you'd build a product and you'd have these periodic research reports or or strategic planning functions but we realized that shit was coming down the pike every day, and we yeah. always had to be looking around. That degree of foresight was something we need to figure out how to systematize it and move on to. As I mentioned, we were practicing what I call crisis agile, working in daily sprints, sometimes even faster. We needed to figure out how to adopt agile all throughout the organization and hold on to it sustainably. The next piece was we ignored org charts, and we were busting down silos. We were a truly inclusive organization.
1: I had several CEOs tell me that in the interview for my book that, like, it didn't matter what office you were in, like, you were the same screen as everyone. It just broke down hierarchy because everyone's the same little two by three inch thing on Zoom, right?
0: Exactly. And, you know, when I was working with Federal Express, they had never pulled together their top 3,000 leaders in a physical meeting. So we ended up having the very first remote offsite of their top leadership. But instead of many companies that were using one-way broadcasting to them, yeah. we ended yeah. up being we took Tony Robbins. Uh, Tony's been a friend of mine for years. One of the things he cracked the code of: how do you pull thousands of people together with breakout rooms, etc.? So we utilized what he jerry-rigged out of Zoom. We utilized that and made sure we brought it to big companies, so we started having two-way dialogues that are the most massive, crowdsourced innovation. Unilever, we ended up doing business planning with the top 300 executives instead of the 15 uh, executive team. So inclusion, and then finally, resilience. We worked with Weight Watchers, Headspace, and a number of other organizations to ask the question, how do we stay resilient and and sustain mental and physical well-being during such a radically adaptable time? So that was the work. And that's, that's the focus of the book.
1: It's really interesting. You know, I, I mean, working with Delta, I can't imagine, uh, you know, it's a great company, but a more destroyed or chaotic industry. I'm, I'm flying Delta this afternoon. Actually, I, I mean, you can't give me the insight on this, but I wonder in some ways, other than the masks and stuff. Traveling right now is much more of a pleasure. Like, oh, you need to switch flights, you switch flight. You know, all the fees have gone away and all the, it's become more customer centric. And I was just saying yesterday, I'm like, it's just such a pleasure. Like, I I hope it lasts. (laughs) I don't know that it will, but everyone, I'm not sure it's
0: going to last with everybody, but it's going to last with Delta. Delta knew that when they lost 90% of their revenue, they were going to reinvent themselves for coming out of this, maybe 30% smaller, but better, stronger, more. More loyal customers, and they did it. I mean, they they did some things that I was just blown away from.
1: They were the no middle seat, right? They were the no middle
0: seat were the first ones, right? And they held on to it. But the other thing they did was they invented a uh, a patented technology that allowed these uh, planes to be cleaned fast. Oh, and, it was a robot, right? That like and better than others. You guess what? They yeah, gave, and they gave away the technology to their competitors because it was yeah, the right yeah. thing to do. I mean, that's just what they did. They were such ladies and gentlemen. They focused on the customer. It was an extraordinary turnaround.
1: So what do you think for the industry? Like Southwest has been the one who stayed on, Hey, no fees and you can change and flexibility. And, but I know these fees were like, you know, majority of, of revenue. Like, do you think most will go back or, or they'll try to stay with this? Hey, how can we be more? How can you have someone spend money with us and then keep it in the system and keep them happy and, you know, not feel like they're getting gouged.
0: Look, these, these organizations had pretty thin margins in the first yeah. place. They're heavy overhead organizations. It's very interesting. One of the things that I think will be interesting to watch is whether or not these organizations take advantage of the hybrid work world, despite the fact that some of them feel like they're working against hybrid. Yeah. So the idea of what's you know what is an airline's competition? It's anything that erodes getting on a plane and ta- and having a meeting,
1: right. and so
0: I fear that that is going to be an element of internal turmoil for some of these organizations. But it can, in fact, if they were to reduce some of that you know that physical footprint that they have, it could actually reduce some of their their costs that they could pass on to customers.
1: Right. But look, the flip side of that, or, you know, you charge a price that, that includes that in it, you know, and now it's, you know, $20 more and you have the flexibility, but I, you know, but the flip side of that is, you know, the leisure, you know, people just want to see their friends. They want to go places. I know they've been, all the airlines have been repurposing jumbo jets for domestic routes. You know, it's, yeah. it's again, adapts. I, if there's any leader or CEO sitting out there, like, Waiting for things to go back to 2019. Get it. <laughs> I'm just not. Well, that would
0: be. I, I'm saddened for you. That's <laughs> yeah. who you are. That's the whole reason for the book was to give you a roadmap of the best. Look, no, I didn't meet any one executive that did it all right, but I did meet 2,000 executives that were doing parts of it right, and we wanted to aggregate that right. into a single roadmap.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the role. to post your job for free, terms and conditions apply. So, other when I mean, we talked about some of these things, but what were the what were the things that weren't obvious to anyone before the pandemic that you would say just got that the bleeding edge people knew? And I know you and I were talking about some of them, but they just got pushed up five years, and now it's yeah. And I, I would even say
0: I'll give you one that even the bleeding edge still hasn't figured out. Yeah, which is you do not start uh, collaboration with meetings. So everybody said, "Oh my gosh, we can do." Remote, and everyone was patting them on themselves on the back, proud of themselves that they could take an old form meeting that they used to have physically in a room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is how. It's
1: how all technologies get misused. Plays yeah. wh- the first movies were videoed plays. The first e-commerce stores were were physical, like malls recreated.
0: Yeah, and so these folks just ported old style collaboration into into a remote setting, and then everybody was degraded by Zoom gloom because one meeting after another. So the big thing that we've we've made teams awaken to is the power and the importance of asynchronous collaboration. How do you start meetings in the cloud? How do you begin? So, I'll give you a, a simple example. One manufacturer had a problem with retooling its manufacturing during the pandemic, and it was going to have a meeting with 12 people in it. And I said, no, let's create a document that says, what's the problem? We're slow in the retooling. What's a bold solution? Let's reduce the complexity to the product so we can speed up the retooling. Um, who's going to be pissed off about it? The marketing organization. And uh, who should be involved in the meeting? Here's 12 people. We sent it out to 12 people. First thing we found that three people didn't give a shit that would have been sitting in that meeting unnecessarily. Yeah. And then we found that the, the people that did give a shit, some of them didn't have much insight. And then we found that those who had insight and did give a shit had some other people that they thought really should be there. So they sent this document out to others. We ended up with 35 people collaborating of which six people mattered. Six people mattered. And of the six, only three of them were originally invited to the 12th. The ones that really cracked the code on the solution were not even the three, they were the three that weren't invited and would have never been invited. So here we have a situation where collaborating in the cloud without a physical meeting, these guys had been meeting on this subject for multiple months and they had not gotten anywhere. They ended up doing this over a two-week period, landed the plane with a new R&D, a joint R&D function between marketing and manufacturing that is now jointly funding and actually moving the needle. And they're, they've broken down the log jams. This just happened through using something, a, a new tool we called a decision board or, or a discussion board instead of a meeting.
1: Yeah. I mean... I have a slide in one of my presentations I use, people, you know, a couple moving out of a house. And I always say, when you move out, right, one of the partners is strongly advocating to throw out half the stuff and the other wants to box up all the stuff that they haven't used in five years and take it to the new house. And, And the right answer is to throw it out, right? And I think the same thing has happened with the meeting where it's like, we use the Traction EOS system for years. We still do. And one of the tenets of that is this level 10 meeting. Right? And the whole point is at the end, you rate the meeting. And if it's not a 9 or a 10 and it's a 4 or 5, like why are you having this meeting if it's not valuable to everyone? And I think Jeff Bezos had this right with his memo system. I mean, a meeting needs to be a dialogue and discussion and a decision. The biggest time waster I've seen is, is readout or update meetings. And the people that are guiltiest of this, and I've particularly attacked it in every nonprofit I'm involved with, is the finance team. Right? They'll mm-hmm. sit there and read you spreadsheets and results that you're perfectly capable of looking at before the meeting and coming in and say, "Okay, what are the two we need to talk about? The drop in revenue and the margin being a hundred percentage points. Like, what are our solutions for that?" So I, I mean, update meetings to me probably is half of the time in America, and they're just not to get everyone. As you're saying, asynchronous. to get everyone on this synchronously to listen to something that they could have absorbed asynchronously makes no sense.
0: Well, you know, one of the things we started to do is using standups. So I was talking to the 3M organization, and they were they were sharing some of the things they were doing around agile. And I said, well, but you're still on a global basis trying to struggle to find time where everybody in the world, China and you know where I forget where they are. Mid Midwest yeah. can be at a standup at the same time, and so someone's staying up late or someone's getting up stupid early. So I said, "Why do you do that? Why don't you send the standup report in a five minute video format to right. everybody, yeah. and then open a document where everybody that would have been at the standup has a twenty four hour period where they can watch the video and challenge the scrum, give an innovation, offer support or help." And there's a set of questions they ask. Now you've done the stand-up in an asynchronous fashion, and the person gets all the feedback. Now, if the person wants to follow up with a couple of individuals who had particularly insightful things to say or provocative questions, that's great. So they've adopted that. And it's just been totally transformative to how they thought about agile stand-ups.
1: Asynchronous video is is a tool that I learned during COVID. I learned when we were going through crisis and we had employees all over the world, like, I'm not going to get them... I always say like, if you're presenting, you know, one way on a webinar, everyone can see you, right? They see your smile. Like it gives a little more character. Like some of these were grave messages. Some of these were encouraging ones. And so it was important to be seen, but to make some people in, you know, Asia wake up at 6am to make it work for everyone to watch you know, a message
0: that has to be, I just started making five minute
1: videos and sending them out to the company.
0: I'll show you something else that I've done. Listen to this just uh, just two seconds. Hey Keith, I've been out of pocket. Sorry about this. Um, (laughs) Love to support you. Um, So you know who that is. That's the voice sounds very familiar. It's Tony Robbins. Tony's a very busy guy. He's a very busy guy. He and I have ongoing, deep, deep emotional conversations in just asynchronous tech uh, voice message. Yeah, And it's amazing. We like literally have entire meetings that our office can never get scheduled to try to get us together. We just go back and forth and it's really wonderful. It's fantastic. And it's something little like that. I mean, you know, it's, and it's different than just texting or email. My wife was using an app like that with her
1: friend one weekend. It was like a video app and you just sent them back and forth. And I was like, it's interesting. Most people don't communicate that way, but yeah, it think about the time that we spend in the in-between. In, in yeah. 10 people and an EA on a message trying to find 45 minutes, right? That's, and it ends up happening a week after you actually needed a talk. Right. So I think you're right. I think that's probably a really bleeding edge. What is a, What does a almost asynchronous meeting space look like that has some content, some assets, not everyone are, are maybe in it as once, but it's it, it's a space that's created around solving that issue and people yeah. come into it and out of it. Like who's
0: doing that or what technology is doing that? Well, I, the answer is, it's as you know, it's not the technology. It's the use case. It's the mindset. Every technology can do that. Right. Who cares what the technology is? You know, the ability to jerry-rig technology to change the way we work. And this is where- That's I a SharePoint a,
1: could be like a really good for something like that, right?
0: Exactly. SharePoint, you know, it could be anything. Yeah. We, have, uh, we had 300 of the top CIOs in the world in this discussion. FedEx, Coke, Procter & Gamble. I mean, like the biggest companies in the world. And these individuals were working with us to make sure that we understood, if we're going to implement hybrid, how do we make sure that we're not just putting tools in place, utilizing to support old ways of working, but how do we reboot the way we think about work while we use these tools? And every one of them had different technologies. The problem was getting people to say, we're going to start collaboration, not in a meeting. And what we identified were that there are eight myths associated with work that we needed to be rebooted before we utilize the tools well. Yeah. You asked me some of the big ahas, right? And one of the big ahas, and shouldn't be an aha for you and I, which is that most teams suck. They, so wait, they suck or the way they work sucks? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, 81% of teams claim that they are underperforming teams, 81% of teams. Right, and when you double click in, I'll give you uh, on a scale of zero to five, only two point four claim that their team is courageous that can speak up in a room, two point four yeah. on a scale of zero to five.
1: This go- I mean, this is right at Patrick Lencioni's, you know, foundation. Right, trust gets to disagreement.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, and I love Lencioni's work. It was a book written twenty years ago. Yeah, and Patrick is a genius having initiated that. For 20 years, though, we have been researching hybrid teams. So we've been looking since you know Cisco funded us, Accenture funded us. We have taken that fundamental work that's 20 years old and rebooted it for a hybrid work world. And it's interesting. So now you take a look at candor. And yes, we can say that that's a dysfunction of the team. But what I can tell you is that there are three fundamental practices in a hybrid work world where if you introduce them to a team, can move an average of 2.4 to a 4.4 on a scale of 0 to 5. One of them is using breakout rooms. If you use breakout yeah. rooms during meetings, you improve the psychological safety, and you increase the perception of your your ability and willingness to be candid in the room by 80%. Just using breakout rooms. Yeah. The second thing is creating a, a safe word in business. I don't know, uh, Robert, if you know what a safe word is. I I do. Okay, good. So I'm just curious if any of your guests know what a safe word is. But if you know what a safe word is, if they
1: don't, they're Googling. So,
0: right. So, a safe word in business is a word you use when you're about to take a big risk. So, you know, we say, hey, listen, you know, we call it Yoda. I have that little character because Yoda represents all the wisdom that exists in the world. It happens to exist in your team, but it's not out there. So, somebody says, hey, Yoda moment, which means I'm about to say something that I think should be said, but it's not being said. And everybody knows that that means chill. We might get pissed off by what he, what you're about to say, but we're going to cut you a break because you're taking a risk. So it's Yoda moment, and that's another big tool. If we give people the permission to mark the fact that they're about to take a risk, yeah, that's
1: a good preface. Like I, I one thing I always point out to people, and I think is a terrible preface, is when and it's a huge crutch for a lot of people. I think it skews more female than male, but if I'm being honest. People start, you know, a, a sentence with that, which is just very disempowering.
0: and Or worse, allow me to play devil's advocate. Fuck
1: you. <laughs> Fuck so you. So I say, with it being honest, I, I normally try to shock them a little bit. I'm like, do you normally lie to me? And then they, they didn't right. even realize they said it. But you're saying in this case, the preface is good because you're you're asking for that safe space.
0: You're, you're saying, I'm going to about to say something provocative, challenging, yeah. and please don't shit all over me. Right. I would like to have the permission to be bold. Right and now, obviously, up front, there has to be a social recontracting. So one of one of the things that we do with when we're coaching executive teams, and that's as you know, Robert, that's my core business. Yeah, is why I reacted by you quoting Lencioni instead of my work, but that's okay. <laughs> so the which I love, Pat, and he really was the grandfather of all of this. So I totally get it. I,
1: I just think that pyramid is. I, I think that's one of the that to me when he put out that work and following that and realizing the, the false agreement and what a danger a false agreement is versus like, let's have it out. And then let's,
0: cause we trust well, but, each other. Again, and Kim Malone Scott is a dear friend as well. Yeah. And, you know, with radical candor, she's amazing. The work that we have to bring in though, is a new social contract. Yeah. Because what we realized is that our data showed that we have poor social contracts. The myth is that if I speak up in a room against a peer, I'm throwing them under the buffs, right? That's a myth. We're not throwing you under the bus.
1: Well, this is Adam Grant recently said on this. On this is task conflict versus relationship conflict, right? right. That is a, is a huge difference when it's you know arguing the substance of you might everyone might agree on the problem, but no one might agree on the solution,
0: right? Well, there's also uh, to go into methodologies for a second. There's three things that break down trust, right? Professional disrespect, yep. meaning yep. you're not getting your shit done. Um, or I don't prove your, your opinion, et cetera. Personal disrespect or challenge around, I don't like you. I don't like your style. I don't like your ethics, whatever it is. I don't like you. And then structural trust, where there's this um, struggling over a resource or a boundary or turf, et cetera, right? So those are the three things that break down trust, structural, professional, and personal. And it's interesting because I it bothers me to a great end when companies say, well, we just have to build trust in our team. That's such a nebulous idea. You build trust through delivery. You build trust through personal relationships. And you build trust by eliminating archaic barriers of turf and silos that people think they have to stay within and swim lanes. So we've got to break these things down into their component parts to matter. And a lot of that, again, is the social contract. We've got to reboot the social contract consciously, verbally, clearly. And one of them is... I'm not throwing you under the bus if I critique you. I'm actually a give a shit enough about you that I'm not going to let you fail. And once you believe I'm not going to let you fail and that's my job, that means that person will receive that information. Now, the other thing very interesting we found in our research in this past few years is what happened was there was this shift from hierarchy to peer-to-peer. That's where the word co-elevation comes in, where peers started being more willing To hold each other accountable for critical deliverables in crisis, as opposed to everything going up to through the hierarchy or control org charts. When that's true, it's interesting. Peers didn't realize that if a peer gave a peer feedback, it doesn't come with the same contract as when a boss gave you feedback. You're saying the boss just has implied permission. The boss not only has implied permission, but the boss has, has something added to the feedback, which is a directive. So if I work for you, Robert, and you say to me, I don't think you should wear black shirts, I'd be like, okay, my boss has told me I shouldn't wear black shirts. I probably shouldn't wear black shirts. Now it's a directive. And I've got to absorb that. If a peer says to me, I don't think you should wear black shirts. I don't have to do shit about that.
1: Yeah. And you probably get angry and you're like, you green shirts are ugly. Right. <laughs>
0: so, and what, what what I would say in a situation like this, not to lose the point is, okay, a peer just gave me a data point. I don't have to do anything about it. So I don't have to get angry. I just have to ask why. Well, why don't you think I should wear a black shirt? Now, the problem is if we think that every time someone gives you feedback, it's coming with a direction. We're used to hearing feedback and direction tied together. A boss gives you feedback. He's telling you what to do differently and you have to do it. The problem is, when a peer gives you feedback, you're reacting as if you have to do something about it, and you don't. All you've got to do is say, that's interesting. Thank you. I'm curious. Tell me more. And if we have that dialogue among a group where we start to realize that peers should give peers feedback abundantly, but peers are not allowed to think that their feedback is a directive, now all of a sudden, it's just data, and we can analyze the data without defensiveness but that's a part of the the new social contract that we've got to negotiate with each other.
1: So in the social contract, is this a top down is this a is each team need to make this within an organization or does it need to be at a higher level because it occurs to me that yeah I'm not sure where it
0: lives. So all of this is housed in this new book, right? And when we go into a company to coach this into a culture, we can do it in three different ways. And I'll tell you the ways that are most productive. The best way is you give me an important team in the company, and we will coach that into the team. What's the most important team in a company? The executive team. So that's why we often work with that executive team. The other place is a critical transformation that's happening in the organization. Have it into that team. Now That team might not be an intact team, meaning it might not be a direct report team, but it might be a group of people organized together to re-engineer the way we're investing our R&D funding, and it's across multiple divisions, but it's a networked team on a critical project. If you reboot that team's social contract, that's incredibly powerful, because you can see it it lead to a set of real results that matter to the company faster. And now you've got a set of nodes of people in the business that have seen the social contract work differently, and they take it back into the business. And the third way, is a very traditional way, and I'm not prone to it, but we have this project. We have this service line because people still want to buy it that way, which is by coaching and training and development, which you roll it out to all managers. We teach managers how to do this. Now, I frankly would rather coach it into existence in a real-life team with a real-life project because you can see it correlate to outcomes. People will awaken to it. it. It becomes more ingrained in their work as opposed to training and workshops.
1: Right. So when it's theory versus when it's actually you're yeah. using an exam, it, it just, I can get it, it doesn't hit it. I as- was just
0: saying this, you know, I was talking to my, my buddy Dirk, who he and I have this business now that we created together. And, you know, one big, very big Fortune 10 organization wants to roll out this methodology to everybody. So they're doing workshops. And I said to him, I said, damn it, you're going to have a 20% yeah. uptake, <laughs> you know, 20% if you're lucky. We need to be in the room when that leader leaves your training, watching him, coaching him how he's bringing this tool, because, you know, it's funny. I was working for, I'm not going to say who the company is, very big one. And this is now after three meetings already. And we had done the diagnostic on candor that we do when we coach teams. And he he was a 2.1 of candor in his team. What's the scale? A zero to five. Okay. Bad, but if it was 10, it was (laughs) even... It even yeah, worse, even worse. So. Bad either way. We get to the third meeting, which is when we usually do the benchmark again. All of their stuff had lifted successfully, except for this piece on candor. He had gone to a three. And he looks at this, and he gets upset. It was so funny. I'm sitting there watching. And he gets upset, the leader. And he says to his team, damn it, three is not acceptable. Three yeah. <laughs> in candor is not acceptable. I want to see this number at four. I keep telling you, you need to be candid in the room. He's shouting at his team. They're scared to the death him. of him. Yeah, yeah, Fucking scared to death, right? <laughs> and I just paused. I said, and I said, Jay. It's, his name's not Jay, sure. but I said, Jay. I said, I am. elephant <laughs> moment. Yeah. <laughs> I said, this is fucking hysterical. I said that out loud. I said, here's the deal. I don't want you to say a word. Getting that number to four is all on you. Nobody else. What are you going to do between now and the next meeting to get that to a four? It's all on you. It's your fault. It's your responsibility. You don't talk to your team about it. If it's not a 4, you're a failure. I look forward to seeing you next month. And he just laughed and he realized he's right. You know, it, it was his number, not the team's number. Yeah. And they got up to a 3.8 in less than a month and they ultimately got up to a 4.4. So, I was pretty happy.
1: That's very funny. Hey, elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So one of the ideas in the new book is the leadership model of radical adaptability. So how do you define that and how does it differ from what we've seen before?
0: So as you know, today's the book launch and I've been on a lot of podcasts. So I forget whether or not I said this in this podcast (laughs) or the one right before
1: this. Say but, it again, it's important.
0: Yeah. We we talked so
1: about good. adaptability
0: earlier, but I don't know whether you went into Well, the we've full been practicing channel. crisis agile, right? Uh, this yeah. is and crisis agile was out of crisis, we went on these very short work sprints and then we reassessed. Short work sprints, reassessed. And that worked beautifully for us. It allows us to get through this crisis. What we need to start to do is adopting enterprise-wide agile in our organizations. And very few executive teams use Agile as an operating framework. I think that the new operating framework for companies will be Agile. Now, Agile alone isn't radically adaptable. Radically adaptable is when you add to it this wonderful insight that we saw around foresight. So, very interesting, uh, Robert. I went back and I talked to a bunch of companies who had operations in China. And I asked them, when did you? Embraced the pandemic, and when did you go fully remote, and when did you really decide this is what's going to happen? Eighty percent of them were caught on their heels on March thirteenth yeah, and it was interesting because th- these are companies that literally on the eleventh were mentioning covid, but it wasn't the cry sure it wasn't a that. crisis.
1: i st- I remember, like, It was just a logarithmic time period. Like a week before, whatever you were doing that was okay, was not okay. I just, I remember saying to people every day after March 13th, felt like a week.
0: But when I found one company, which didn't have operations in China, it was Lockheed Space run by uh, Rick Rick Ambrose. What he had was something that all organizations need to have going forward. On a monthly basis, he brought his team together. And there was a five-minute window on the executive team meeting where every person had look, was, was responsible for looking at the world of risk and opportunity differently. The sales organization was looking at competition. Marketing organization was looking at customer insights, the right. whatever. The CFO was looking at whatever.
1: But they all had and to come with what, what's going to hurt us, right?
0: What's going to hurt us and where are the big opportunities? Right. Five minutes... They would say, OK, we're going to we're going to do our uh, foresight assessment and anybody have anything. Not everybody would. You know, you don't have to say anything. But one person in December said, well, a bit, we, we've we heard about this virus in China and we think it could be, you know, serious over there. We've got supply chain and dis- potential disruption from Asia. And they decide at that point whether there would be called an assessment meeting. Which is its own meaning on this risk issue. And they did. They had an assessment meeting. Then they decided at the assessment meeting whether something went into planning or not. They didn't decide this would go into planning until January. So they had the assessment meeting. They decided not to do anything about it, but watch it. Then in January, they watched it again. They decided to go into planning. By February, the very beginning of February, they went full virtual. They literally went full virtual in February. They had all the PPE they needed. They had all the screens and laptops they needed. They had plenty of They did of time. this all
1: based on watching what was going on in China and not assuming it was going to be a their problem.
0: They did the assessment and they brought it into the executive team. There were other organizations, uh, some banks, that they knew it in their risk assessment group, but their risk assessment group couldn't get the executive team time to act on it. So this is the point is that as executive teams, we need to bring this foresight question into a crowdsourced, dispersed responsibility of the team, not a division if you're a big company that does strategy and and risk mitigation, but actually bring it into the group and disperse it among the team and then respect the time for it. So a radically adaptable company is constantly looking at the aperture of what are the risks and what are the opportunities on an ongoing basis and where they need to go with those, along with an agile framework of these monthly sprints of looking at the world and running our meetings, those two things together are very powerful. Now, the two things you add to that is realizing that in a hybrid and a remote world, we can have massive inclusion. That example I used earlier wasn't 12 people, it was 35 people involved in the discussion. We can actually have radical inclusion. And finally, how do you do all of this while staying resilient and keeping our energy strong and not dying on the vine like so many other organizations are doing today from a mental well-being perspective.
1: How much of this is goes to the sort of stockdale paradox and just the inability to deal with reality. Like I, I mean, some organizations were slow, right? But how many other just like don't want to when something's in front of them they don't want to believe that it's true.
0: I think that I understand that that mental model of humans. Yeah. But that's why we create these processes. Yeah. Right? This five-minute assessment time, then you have the actual assessment meeting. You're forced to deal with curiosity. The social contract is: we're going to lean in and try to find the disruption. We're going to find. we would be curious. We're going to curate the time. So, what I'm excited about is this model that we created in the book that we extracted from 2,000 executives of their best practices, like Rick did, etc., like FedEx did. Is none of us really had it right. But all of us had it somewhat right, and I wanted to pull it together into a single algorithm for how do we lead in a radically adaptable fashion. And I, I look, I think we've been in radical volatility for a long time. It just got heightened in the last two years. And you know, while I'm certainly not glad, I, I was just talking to somebody who lost their mother-in-law in the last meeting, I'm certainly not glad that this happened, but I'm glad that we've been given the time to really question, as you said earlier, and reboot, as you said earlier, the fundamentals of of what we assumed of work. But I am fearful that that even two and a half years, even three years, isn't enough to assure the solidification of those lessons. That's why Harvard has picked this as their top book coming out of the pandemic. It's the one place where we've solidified what we've learned during the pandemic. And we want to hold on to and go forward to
1: what was the radical adaptability that you had to do for your own business from mm-hmm. the time that COVID hit?
0: Oh God, so much. <laughs> um, first of all, I was so great <laughs> than writing it. a new book about adaptability. <laughs> well, that's a big part of it. And, um, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things. I blocked every Friday for research and writing time. Now I had a team of 14 people working on this But my Fridays became my day to receive all this information, collaborate with the team, write, edit, et cetera. So blocking critical time for things like this, where in the past, it was very difficult for me to find the time, which is why my last book took me eight years to write, whereas this one took me less than two. The other thing that was my big shift is partnership. And that's why, Robert, you you and I started this conversation before we got on camera about what you and I could do together. Yeah. Keon Gohar has been a friend of mine for years. He was Peter Diamandis' guy at Singularity University who ran all of the innovation um, workshops with large corporations. I knew I couldn't get Peter to write this book with me. He was in the process of writing his book that's also coming out that you should get with Tony Robbins around longevity. In fact, you know, happy to introduce you if you want to have one of those guys in the podcast. But the, the book, I needed that insight around all of Peter's IP in terms of transformational business uh, models, et cetera. So I got Keon to write this. I've awakened to partnerships. You know, I've always been good at networks, but I've gotten to be much better at
1: partnerships. That's my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: And that's why I was like, you know, all the work you and I are both doing in hybrid, we should find a way. I mean, imagine if the two of us went out into the world and conquered this together. I mean, your intellect and my, my good looks, I mean, together it would be amazing.
1: I was going to say this is it's the other way around. So, <laughs> five years from now, what what is the average workplace going to look like? Are we going to have a boomerang back to in person, or offices going to be different, yeah. remote, hybrid? What do what you maybe average isn't the right word.
0: I'll give you some crazy ass. You know, <laughs> I'm going to lose some of your audience right here, but all right, um, you going Jetsons style on us? Yeah, I'm going to go Jetsons. I'm going yeah. to go Jetsons. First of all. <laughs> we're going to have 50% of our employees on Upwork or some platform yeah. Of, yeah. of gig workers. And the other thing is, this is just totally out of the blue, which I love doing with seven minutes you know, less than seven minutes left in our conversation. Instead of people being shy and coy of coaching and shy and coy of therapy and talking about that and God forbid medicated with SSRIs, I think we're going to have a more ubiquitous use of psychedelics as a productivity enhancement tool where people are, whether it's microdosing of psilocybin mushrooms or whatever it is, where I think we start to look at how our brains are rebooted in ways with, with molecules in medicine that is going to open up aperture of things that we didn't see. This was a new industry that came to fruition in the last two years. It's not in my book.
1: Yeah. Tim Ferriss is spending a lot of time on this other been here. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think that that's going to be, you know, I think we're going to start to cut down the barriers of narcissism and insecurity and psychological unsafety in ways that will be pretty significant. It's only, you know, right now you can, there are ketamine clinics that people can go and get significant reboots on. Um, We're going to start seeing that being more normal in helping the messy people stuff in business.
1: I agree with you with this Upwork thing. I think the interesting challenge for leaders is is what is the core and what is the not. I always say the problem I'm seeing now, and the problem is from a supply labor, you know, imbalance. We flip so hard to labor having all of the power that I, I'm seeing a a gig job mentality in the organization. You know, I, I want what I want when I want it now, and and obviously, as you know, like great cultures and stuff. You you need teams and and goal. You can't optimize around. You know, individuals. so how, how will companies balance this sort of the core and the team and the shared goals with the sort of mercenary bring in the talent to do a specific job?
0: Well, I think people will will vote with their feet. Gig worker will choose where to go based on how that receptivity is. So if you've got somebody hiring mercenaries and treating them like mercenaries versus individuals deeply appreciative and respectful, for the time you're giving us and nurturing you, there's going to be a competition for where gig workers should go. I mean, right now I'm I don't know if Upwork has, you know, a five-star process where if yeah. you've done work, you know, it's going to be reverse Uber ratings. You're right. not just rating the the worker, you're going to be rating the client like a glass door kind of thing. Yeah, but it it is, I get it. I I'm not
1: talking about again, I I don't where the company is treating it necessarily mercenary, but I just think it is a there's a me here now culture, right? And, and for example, people say, well, I, I want the raise just this day or I want, it's not unreasonable, but the person in the team is like, look, I can't run a team like this. I can't run a spot market team where I'm promoting, you know, we, we, we try to synchronize these things. Maybe it's once a month, you know, we have to roll them out. I'm curious to see how this plays out. Again, if you want to be a gig well, worker.
0: I'll tell you what's, what we're going to see. We're also going to see software adapt to this.
1: This is the holacracy, yeah, which we which, which don't have enough time to jump yeah. into.
0: But, I mean, yeah. have everybody go to thetonysheaward.com yeah. and see what companies are doing on the radical edge. I think we're, we're going to start working in self-managed network teams, but we don't have any software to support that. How do teams come together in networks? So that's a whole different thing. Let's talk about the book because I want
1: to make sure people get this book. Yeah, I I was just, you you beat me in the last question, which is where can people learn more about your work, the book? Uh, I know you got an offer out there for everyone.
0: Yeah, the most important thing I would say is the book's out today. Please go and uh, get it from Amazon. But if you go to radicallyadapt.com, radicallyadapt.com, or go to our research website where we posted all of this research, go forward to work.com forward slash book. We're giving you a free video series around this book. Every chapter has a 10 minute video teaching you how to use this book. And I'm very proud of the video series. We're going to be selling it next month. Right now it's for free to encourage you to buy the book now. So please buy the book and you're going to love all the research. It's It's your opportunity to learn from 2000 of your peers around how they've used this time as an inflection point to go forward, not back to work, how they became radically adaptable. And we pulled all of those best practices insight into the video series and the book. And it's Harvard's number one pick coming out of the pandemic. Very excited about the book and um, looking forward to getting in your hands and going on the journey together.
1: All right, Keith, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us again. And, and good luck to you on, on launch day.
0: Robert, thank you. Look forward to partnering with you. When we see each other next, we'll be talking about our new partnership.
1: There's a lot of people I want. Okay, we're we're all done with the pandemic. So (laughs) it might not be done with us, but uh, I'm looking forward to those in-person meetings. So you can learn more about Keith and his new book, Competing in the New World of Work on the episode page at robertglazer.com. We'll also include uh, the link he just shared. Uh, If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award winning digital media empire, Yap Media